Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Associate Pastor Reverend Dave Kiefer. Tonight we're going to be looking at Psalm 12, a lament of David. Uh, Psalm 12 just expresses David's frustrations and, and disappointments. And in some ways, Psalm 12 reminds me of a popular song on the radio when I was a kid sung by Bonnie Tyler called Holding Out for a Hero. Where have all the good men gone? And where are all the gods? Isn't there a white knight upon a fiery steed? She continues, upon where the mountains meet the heavens upon, out where the lightning splits the sea. I could swear there's someone somewhere watching me through the wind and the chill and the rain and the storm and the flood. I can feel his approach like a fire in my blood. And then she sings out the chorus that you might recognize. I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero to the end of the night. He's got to be strong and he's got to be fast, and he's got to be fresh from the fight. I need a hero. Now, I doubt Bonnie Tyler was thinking of Jesus, at least consciously when she was writing those words, but that is the hero that she describes, and the hero that all of our hearts ultimately long for, and the only type of hero we would be satisfied with, and it describes what God has done for us through Christ. And as we read Psalm 12, a similar question that Bonnie asks in her song is in David's heart. Where have all the good men and women gone? For the godly and faithful seem to have vanished. But in his lament, David turns to God who is ever watching through the wind and the chill and the rain. And David waits for this hero to come through the storm and the flood. Before we read Uh, Psalm 12, and sit with David as he laments, Uh, let us pray to God and ask that he would open our eyes and our hearts to hear his word and apply it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being a God who is a God of revelation. Thank you for being the heroic God that doesn't stay apart from the problem, but dives in. And not only do you send your prophets And not only do you send your representatives, but you come yourself in the person of Jesus Christ to prove to us once and for all that you are in the fight, and you are fighting not only with us, but for us, and you win the battles that we can't win. And we look around and we feel despairing and alone. We can know we are not, for you have entered in, and you are always with us. And so, Lord, we pray that tonight as we lament with David, as we understand his situation, we pray that we would... Uh, we would not only understand it and how it applied then, but how it applies to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. We read Psalm 12, Psalm of David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boast. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, 
Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place them in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation and forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of men. So, a simple outline to help us understand this psalm. David David's lament illustrates three things. First, a terrible situation that unfortunately is not that uncommon throughout history. Second, his desperate prayer uh, that most definitely is needed when we face such terrible situations. And then third, uh, the Lord Yahweh's intervention, his, his reason for intervening and how he intervenes. So first, the terrible situation in verse 1 and 2. David describes verse 1, the godly one is gone. The faithful have vanished from among the children of men. Now, commentators anticipate or expect that this was written while Saul was chasing David uh, and anyone who, you know, sheltered David. We know that Saul killed the priests of Nob because he feared the priests had conspired against him when all they did, in fact, was provide David rest and food. And we know that after David had saved some towns, particularly the town of Kila from the Philistines, God had revealed to David that the city would, would surrender David to Saul if Saul should attack it rather than stand with David and defend his innocence. And we know how Saul forced David into exile for, for years, forcing David to live with that band of brothers in the wilderness, hiding in caves. And on two different occasions, David, David even found it safer to live among Israel's enemies, the Philistines, than among his fellow Israelites. It's the most likely context for David writing this lament. Saul's persecution of David and any who sympathized with him had more than a chilling effect it left David utterly alone. Those who had aided David had been killed by Saul, and even those whom David had rescued were too afraid to stand with David and intervene on his behalf. So David is lamenting his terrible situation of being unjustly persecuted and slandered and alienated from everyone else in Israel. And as he looks around, he feels utterly alone. The godly have disappeared. The faithful have just vanished like poof gone without a trace. One translation says it this way, the, the saintly have failed. The lament uh, reflects one of the most devastating experiences that God's children can ever go through. But notice his lament is not primarily about the unrighteous flourishing. As bad as that is, Yes, Saul's tyranny was proving more and more devastating to the nation of Israel, but what was significantly worse was the godly disappearing from the scene. See, the darkest moments of history is never described simply as the wicked flourishing. That is unsettling and terrible. I don't mean to minimize it, but what is really horrible is when the righteous vanish. How do I mean? From the garden to the flood, we see a comparison and contrast between the godly line of Seth and the ungodly line 
of Cain. And in Genesis 4, Cain's ungodly line goes from bad to worse. And by the time you get to the seventh generation, you have polygamy and homicide. You have tyrannical threats. And you contrast that to the godly line in Genesis 5, and you know that there's still reason to hope because the godly line not only remains, but they're thriving. They're getting better and better, such that by the seventh generation of the godly line, Enoch walks with God. His faithfulness is rewarded that God takes him up, and he seemingly avoids the curse of death. What does this mean? It means this, that no matter how bad it gets, there's always hope as long as the godly line remains true. But then we come to Genesis 6, and the chapter opens with a punch in the gut to godly hope. For we learn that the godly line, the sons of God, have been seduced by the ungodly line, the daughters of men, and they begin to intermarry. And the result is a devastating stage four sin cancer that defiles all of humanity with no one left to restrain the, the, um, the cancer. And God himself laments the wickedness that is let loose, saying in Genesis 6, 5, the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Only evil continually. Yikes. See, the darkest moment of human history It's not necessarily when the wicked flourish. That is devastating. But what's even darker, what's even worse is when the the godly join them. See, before that happens, wickedness is constrained. But when godly men give up and they turn from God and abandon truth, literally all hell breaks loose. It was true in Genesis 6 at the flood, in Genesis 11 at Babel, and in Psalm 12 with David. And notice, according to David's lament, this hell results in a growing desire and an ability to avoid reality by speaking lies and manipulating the truth. Look at verse 2. Everyone's uttering lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. See, when the godly vanish, so does truth. People grow increasingly comfortable with lies. They fear speaking the truth lest they gain the attention of unjust power brokers that want to make them pay. See, power replaces justice. Fear eviscerates all courage. In the dystopian fictional trilogy called The Hunger Games, the capital rules 12 districts of a country called Pan Am and rules them with an iron fist. Now, of course, the capital's greatest fear is that one day all the districts will join together and rebel against the capital. And to keep the districts weak and divided, the capital creates the Hunger Games. Each year, every district is required to offer up in tribute to the capital one male and one female minor to fight on live television to the death in the Hunger Games. The lone survivor is crowned the victor and given wealth and riches by the capital. Now, the TV host for the games is this flamboyant man named Caesar Flickerman. And he is a walking illustration of verse 2, a double heart who speaks with flattering lips. For the TV host, uh, for the TV show is produced to entertain the capital, a materialistic cesspool filled with moral rot where everyone 
utters lies to his neighbor, just as it's described in verse 2, and those brave enough to speak the truth have their tongues cut out and they're made avoxes. The insidious thing about Caesar Flickerman is that he plays the role of an amiable talk show host interviewing each tribute the night before they're sent into the arena of the Hunger Games to fight to the death. Caesar is fashionable and flamboyant, and he pretends to be interested and concerned about each tribute's unfortunate situation. His generosity, though, is false, and his words duplicitous. And like his real-life alternatives, people like the North Korean broadcaster known as the woman in, peak, the woman in pink, Ri Chun-hee, Caesar Flickerman is the face and the voice of propaganda for a totalitarian regime. His posture is seemingly sympathetic and welcoming, but he is menacing and dangerous considering the ideals and practices that his regime supports. Now, fortunately, Caesar Flickerman is a fictional character. Unfortunately, he represents what humanity has, be, has proven capable of doing time after time when the godly are gone and the faithful vanish. Culture descend, descends into calling evil good, mocking the good, the right, and the true. Lies, flattery, doublespeak become the norm as people manipulate words and their meaning. How does this relate? Well, in, verse, in, in Psalm 12, David describes humanity's disintegration as the godly vanishing, where in his day, Saul persecuted the righteous and the godly hid. In more recent times, we see how this happens throughout history, right? The disintegration of culture. We can think of the atheistic regimes in North Korea or communist China or the nations behind the Iron Curtain. The false generosity of humanity was manifested again and again with communist dissenters who were shipped off to concentration camps and millions died of neglect and abuse. On a recent uh, plane ride to Cali, Colombia, I talked with a passenger from Venezuela now, fortunately, her grandmother is still receiving the full amount of retirement promised by the socialist government. Unfortunately, due to runaway inflation and the resulting economic collapse, her retirement payments amount to $5 a month of purchasing power. Grandma would be impoverished and starving to death without family members from the United States supporting her. Now, fortunately, right, today's propaganda isn't produced to seduce, uh, I'm sorry, isn't produced to secure political power for Pan Am's capital in a fictional world just trying to butcher young children in the arena. Fortunate for us. But unfortunate, our, our real propaganda is designed to secure political power for godless activists who seek to justify butchering young children's bodies under knives and medical procedures by professionals. Pope Benedict XVI pointed out that a profoundly anti-Christian militancy is steadily overtaking society like a worldwide dictatorship of seemingly humanistic ideologies that push dissenters to society's margins. Powerful forces in academia, media, education, government, and big tech are shifting the boundaries of discourse and public policy to marginalize traditional biblical principles and dilute religious freedoms. So in summary... Psalm 12 is a timeless psalm and a timely one for today. When the godly vanish, it creates a terrible situation. Things go from bad to worse, 
and all hell breaks loose as truth is cast aside. That's the terrible situation that David describes, and unfortunately it repeats throughout history. But given this dark reality, David turns to God with a desperate prayer. Notice this desperate prayer. Save, O Lord. The prayer is childlike in its simplicity. Save me, O Lord. And childlike in its intimacy. See, Lord is in all caps, which tells us this is God's personal name being referenced, Yahweh. It's not a cry to to God in general, but to this personal covenantal God, to the God who had entered into an everlasting covenant with Israel, His people, the personal God who had delivered Israel from Egypt, carrying Israel on His hip like a parent carries a child, a young child. This is the God to whom David prays, the same one who promised to establish a kingdom for His name forever that would be enduring David throws himself into God's care like a child without hesitation or delay. This is childlike, intimate trust. His prayer is simple, intimate, direct. And it's just like a child to get right down to the business to make his point. Lord, make them shut up. (laughs) There's no beating around the bush. He comes right out with it. Verse 3, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongues we will prevail, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? In other words, David's complaint is to God, to his Lord. And he says, look, God, look at what they're saying and doing. They are so arrogant. They boast about their ability to manipulate language and truth. They think that they can do whatever they want. And they believe no one can stop them because they are masters over all whom none can prevail. And so they double down on lies and deceit and flattery, flattering themselves and any who agree with them, as indicated in verse 21. See, David's prayer is, is just simple. It's a child's prayer. It's, it's personal. It's direct. Make them shut up, God, because they are unyielding and unreasonable and wicked, and they're full of lies. Now, notice his prayer. Notice what his prayer is not. His prayer is not, help me to outwit them. Nor is it help me to reason with them. Even though his prayer is childlike in its simplicity, it's not naive. See, David realized that when truth itself is no longer deemed important, no longer valued, it's naive to believe that reason and evidence will make any difference. So instead of wasting his time throwing pearls before swine, as Jesus would later warn us not to do, he, he simply prays, make them shut up. <laughs> Make them stop. Cut off their flattering lips. How does this apply? When the situation proves dire and evil has taken root to the extent that the godly are vanishing, remember the real obstacle and pray about that. Don't allow yourself to get distracted. The real obstacle is always the sinful heart of man and not the intellectual head. Until and unless the stubborn heart is softened and broken, nothing of lasting change can occur. For the heart wants what the heart wants, and no amount of reason or evidence can change the heart. And so consider the context of verse 12. What else did David have to do to prove that he was not against Saul? I mean, he could have easily taken Saul's life many times, but he refused. Evidence and reason might have caused Saul to relent in his attacks against David temporarily, but not very long. It wasn't long before Saul was doubling down in his persecution of David. 
and David's men because Saul's heart wanted what it wanted. It wanted the throne. See, Saul's heart was a real obstacle, not his head. And Jesus nails the point home in Matthew 15:19 when he said, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. So in summary, once you realize the real obstacle is a hard heart, target your prayers there. It's not that David avoided trying to reason with Saul. I'm not saying just, you know, do this. He did reason. He did give evidence. He did prove his innocence, right? It wasn't that David hadn't tried, but it's that David was resolved about his dire situation, and therefore he was free to pray simple, intimate, direct prayers to God about the real issue. David recognized that if anything was to improve, God needed to do it. It was beyond David's ability to save himself. He needed God to intervene, to stop the double-hearted who flattered and lied because they valued their own desires much more than the truth. Yes, do you know the freedom of praying simple, intimate, direct prayers to God? Keeping your focus on what God must do Remembering that only He can change the heart, that only He can stop the mouths of stubborn idolaters, either by granting them repentance unto life or by allowing them to fall on their own swords, as Saul literally did at the end of his life. And that's the way all liars and flatterers end up anyway, falling on their own swords, because Yahweh is just and true. He always intervenes, which leads to the third point, the last part of Psalm 12. So we had David's terrible situation, David's desperate prayer, and last, Yahweh's intervention, verses 5 through 8. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now rise, says the Lord, and I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from generation to generation. On every side, the wicked prowl, as as vileness is exalted among the children of men. In these last four verses, David clarifies why God intervenes and how God intervenes. First, why. His rationale for intervening is justice and mercy. His love and care for the poor. Verse 5, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now rise. And I will place him in the safety for which he longs. God intervenes on behalf of the poor and needy who are most vulnerable to being victimized. And this reminds us what we all know to be true, which is when the ungodly manipulate the truth to avoid reality, everyone is negatively impacted. But the most vulnerable and the most negatively impacted are the poor and needy. Whenever unrighteous people seek to control the narrative so they don't have to face reality, everyone pays, but the vulnerable, the poor, the needy, they pay first and they pay most. Abused family members and church members suffer most when those with influence and authority spin the narrative in the church to protect their reputations. The poorest neighborhoods suffer the most when data on police brutality is manipulated, resulting in calls to defund the police. The young and the immature are most, are most easily manipulated when activists justify or condemn rioting simply because of the political party doing it. 
Frontline medical personnel pay the most when decision makers silence opposing scientific viewpoints. At-risk children in schools are most negatively impacted when unions and politicians are more dedicated to maintaining power than improving academic results. I could go on and on and on. Do I need to? I mean, you all know this. And Psalm 12, 2 through 4, describes and clarifies the propensity of the human heart to utter lies to his neighbors, to speak with double hearts, to make great boasts with the tongue, to declare, we will prepare with our lips, who will master over us? And this inclination for manipulating the truth to hide our self-serving desires and to justify our wicked ways is just as prevalent today as it was throughout the horrors of the 20th century and as it was in David's day. And as a human race, we have proven again and again how low we can go unless and until God intervenes with His justice and mercy. And if He doesn't do that, we will descend into a living hell itself. Therefore, thankfully and gratefully, we can rejoice that God does intervene, verse 5, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan. Yahweh says, I will now arise. I will place them in the safety for which He longs. This is a promise that we have, and it should give us great courage to continue speaking the truth in patience, in humility, and in boldness, but in persistence, trusting in God's promise. God hears the cries of the oppressed. He heard Israel's cry against Pharaoh, David's cry against Saul. The Hebrew word for oppression, anah, occurs 116 times in the Old Testament. God cares about the oppressed. And a main theme of the Bible is God intervening on behalf of the oppressed over and over again through the law and the prophets, and most powerfully through Jesus Christ himself who came to relieve every form of oppression and to liberate the oppressed. So in Psalm 12, David expresses why God rises up against the double-hearted to liberate the poor and needy who are oppressed by their lies. So that's first why. Then how, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. O Lord, you will keep them, you will guard us from this generation and forever. How does the Lord guard us from generation to generation as the wicked prowl and vileness is exalted? It's through the Word of God which is tested and pure. Isaiah explained in chapter 40, verses 6 and 7, all flesh is grass and its beauty is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God stands forever. And in Ephesians 6, Paul illustrates not just the staying power of God's Word, but the penetrating power. He illustrates how Christians are to prepare for life's battle with God's armor, You have the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, but all these are protective and defensive in nature. The only offensive weapon is the Word of God, which is called the sword of the Spirit. And Hebrews reminds us that this Word of God isn't just any sword, but it is the most powerful weapon, for it is a double-edged sword, the best sword of the day, for it could pierce no matter which direction it swung. And Hebrews reminds us that the Word of God is a double-edged sword, pierces soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So here, in Psalm 12, David clarifies another reason God's Word has staying power. It's not just because it's sharp and living and active, but also because it's time-tested. It's been purified through the fires of life 
through the trials and the hardness and the lies and the deceit thrown at it. Therefore, in verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure. They are furnished, refined silver, purified uh, seven times. They've been tested, and they are enduring, and they are purified through all the tests. I don't know how many times I heard this objection working on a secular college campus. I still hear it today. That the Bible's outdated. It's old, and therefore it must be obsolete. We've outgrown it. But those who say it, honestly, they don't know what they're talking about. Yes, the Bible is old. But that is its greatest benefit. It has lasted the test of time. It has endured. Saying the Word of God is obsolete because it's old is like saying the sun is obsolete because it's old. That's silliness. Without the sun, we would be in utter darkness. Without life or light, and without the Word of God, we likewise would be in utter darkness. The philosophies of mankind are like a vapor, like clouds that pass because they are often filled with self-serving purposes. And it can get so bad that the light and truth and hope of the gospel may for a season seem extinguished. But like in the great classic Lord of the Rings, right, when the, when the powers of the evil one and the powers of deceit uh, grow and a great cloud covers the land, Samwise Gamgee, the hero of the Hobbit, said... But this shadow, it's only a passing thing. The darkness must pass. And when the clouds of darkness pass, there stands the Word of God shining like the sun. God's Word is no more obsolete because it's old than the sun is obsolete because it's old. It has staying power, and all else shall pass, but the Word of God stands forever. And by it, we live and we see all things. You, God, will keep them. You, God, will guard them from generation to generation through your word. This is a great promise. So what does it mean? God's method of saving the poor and needy from oppression is his word. It is his truth. So how does this apply? We must hold to it. We must know it. We must memorize it. We must treasure it. It is our precious inheritance that has been refined like pure silver. It has been tested and approved, and so we must treasure it. But not just treasure it, we must hold it as our compass and our guide. And it leads us through the confusion and the doubt. And we hold it as our sword for the battle. And as we use it, we see that it is not us and our words that are strong, but it is God and His Word that pierces through. And so, dear brothers and sisters, let us continue preaching the Word to ourselves. That's the most important person to preach it to. And when you're done preaching it to yourself, preach it to your family. And when you're done preaching it to your family, live it and preach it among your community. And as you do, you will see the power of God's Word, that living and active double-edged sword that penetrates judging thoughts and actions, penetrating joint and marrow, dividing soul and spirit. This is our great promise. This is our great hope. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this psalm. We thank you that in the psalms we find reflected there the laments of when things turn dark, 
that you give us songs to listen to and hear and sing, that you give us the wisdom of those who've gone before, who've been tested in these ways, and who through clinging to your word and your truth and not letting go were vindicated and saved. And Father, help us to likewise cling to your word, to know that it is through your word that you bring your salvation. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that they would read your word, trust your word, treasure your word, for it alone is pure. And Lord, that they would see its power as they begin to wield it, as they begin to speak it, as they begin to trust it and claim it for themselves, that it would pierce through hard hearts and grant repentance unto life, that it might even grant a renewal, a refreshing wind of your spirit in this land and in this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.